0: Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it was that time of year again, and it was in Jerusalem, and the young men uh, were excited. They're excited because uh, they had, for years, celebrated Passover with their families. And this year was going to be uh, like it had been the last couple years. of years. Uh, they, would, uh, they would gather with their rabbi. But this year was going to be a little different because they were going to be in Jerusalem, and they were going to be only with their rabbi, not with their families. And they would gather in an upper room and they would participate in Passover. And given what they had seen and what they had witnessed over the last three years, there was great anticipation and excitement. But there was also a little bit of of dread. Jesus had been saying some ominous things over the last few weeks. A uh, Stuff that even got Peter upset and he once again put his foot in his mouth. It's his spiritual gift. Some of you are blessed with that spiritual gift. And he kept to putting his foot in his mouth. And what had happened a few weeks ago, they were on the way back to Jerusalem. And Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem and I'm going there to die. Peter didn't like what he heard, but Peter knew that the religious leaders, that the political climate of Jerusalem had been shifting and changing. And that for a long time, even as much as two or three years, there had been a movement afoot amongst the powerful to try to kill Jesus. And so the disciples had been saying, why don't we stay on the outskirts Why don't we stay away from Jerusalem? Because if you go to Jerusalem, Jesus, something bad might happen. And in fact, Jesus had said, I'm going to Jerusalem and there I'm going to die. And Peter said, no. No Messiah of mine is going to die. And Jesus had some stern words for Peter. Uh, Peter standing there with his foot in his mouth. Jesus said, Get behind me, adversary. He used uh, the Hebrew word Satan, which uh, you define that word and it means adversary. Get behind me, one who's in my way. Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Appears a little surprised. And now they're in Jerusalem. It's been a crazy week. It's been busy. Uh, Jesus entered in on a donkey. He was riding it. And all the people in Jerusalem, at least a good handful of folks, got excited. They started waving palm branches. They started throwing their coats in the road. uh, And they started to yell, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then this little parade scattered and ended. And it ended with Jesus weeping. Not what you'd expect at the end of a triumphal procession. None of the political candidates, after they won political office a few weeks ago, were weeping. They were rejoicing. The losers weep. But Jesus, after the triumphal entry, is weeping. And he's weeping over Jerusalem. And he says, if you had only known who was visiting you, if you had only known and repented of your sin, You, Jerusalem, who kill the prophets. (laughs) They're about to kill the prophet. He clears the temple. He wanders into the temple and he sees corruption, religious corruption. Uh, they, were, uh, they were ripping people off in the name of God. Uh, they were creating barriers between the people and God. The temple, the place where people were to come and be in God's presence, it had become a place where they had erected walls, rules. <laughs> Reminds me of some churches, I know. And Jesus walked in there and he got a bit upset. Mad, really. Turned over some tables, yelled at some folks, chased some people out and said, my house shall be a house of prayer. You have turned it into a demon of thieves. Perhaps it was at that moment that the folks turned on him. Maybe it was then that they turned on Jesus because in the next few moments, in the next day, he would find himself accused of blasphemy. He would stand before the Sanhedrin. He would give an account for his actions. But before that, supper. Supper would happen. And this was not just any supper. This was a a special supper. This was the Passover supper, the Passover feast. And, And the Jewish men who were traveling with Jesus, the disciples were excited because this was the big high holy day in Israel, one of several. But this was one of the biggies. And Passover was when, you know, they would remember God's passing over them in Egypt. They would commemorate God's work as He passed over their homes, which they had taken the blood of a lamb, which they had uh, prepared in a special way and eaten for dinner, and they took the blood and they had wiped it on their doorposts. And if you're new to church world, you're going, huh? They would take this blood and they were commanded of God to put it on the doorposts of their home. So that when the angel of death came and the plague of death came, he would pass over them and not kill the firstborn amongst the Jews. And then there was great wailing in Egypt. Because the firstborn of every Egyptian from Pharaoh, the most powerful in the land, all the way to the least, the slaves, their firstborn had died. And the livestock too. And at this moment, Pharaoh relented and he said, go to Moses, leave, get out of here. And it was, this, it was this event in history that God had told the people of Israel to commemorate every single year from now on. And it was this meal, several thousand years later, that Jesus and His disciples are sitting at the Last Supper. And Jesus, He is the master of the meal. He is the firstborn. He is the head of the household, so to speak. And so He leads the meal. And part of the leader's job, part of the head of household's job during this meal it, it is to interpret, to inform those who are dining, to remember what is occurring and why they're there. Kind of reminds me about some Thanksgiving uh, traditions that I've heard different families have. You know, our household, Marnie is the leader of the meal because I'm just too hungry and want to eat. She's way more spiritual than me, probably, too. And she says, before we eat. And everybody's like, come on, it's like two o'clock. This took forever. Before we eat, let's all give something we're thankful for. And, of course, everybody's like, I'm thankful we're about to eat. Let's move on, right? I mean, maybe the, you have this happen at your home. And, of course, she wants us to come up with spiritual good things, you know. Bless her heart. And We do. We comply because we want to eat. That's not exactly what's going on here. <laughs> Jesus is leading the meal and he is interpreting the elements of the meal. And one of the elements of the meal is this unleavened bread. Remember that little cracker you just got? It was nothing like this. It's fresh. It was. Prepared that day. That was part of the rules. They had to be prepared that day. It was unleavened because they didn't have time to wait for the yeast to rise. That was the story. Make your bread in haste because your people will leave in haste. And Jesus takes the bread and he does something that shocks the disciples. It's in the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today. It's in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26. A saying of Jesus that packs a punch. He says this. While they were eating. While they were participating in the Passover meal. Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. (laughs) What? I mean, put yourself into this position of these disciples who, since they were young boys, have participated in this meal. And for generations, this bread has had significance. But the significance is, it's unleavened and eat it quick because we're hitting the road, gang. And here... Jesus, the rabbi, the Messiah, assigns new meaning, redefines it. Don't you get in trouble when you redefine stuff? I mean, especially things that are 13, 14, 15, 2000 years old. Don't you get in trouble when you do that? And here Jesus redefines the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And it is at this verse that Christians throughout the generations have thrown haymakers over. It is at this verse that Catholics and Lutherans and whatever we are, mutts, (laughs) argue about. It is at this place where Jesus says, this is my body. And folks get all crazy. You see, our Catholic friends, they teach that it actually becomes the body of Christ. That the bread, when the priest consecrates it and prays over it, it actually becomes the body of Jesus. And they go, the reason it does that is because right here, Jesus said it does that. And then in the 1500s, Luther comes along and Luther uh, takes issue with that. And he says, no, it doesn't actually become the physical body of Christ. It actually does this thing called consubstantiation, and, and which is a really fancy word for it spiritually becomes the body of Jesus. And people kind of looked at Luther and went, what? And then there was others who came along and said, no, this is a, this is figurative language. This is a, this is a symbol. And the reason they say that is because, I mean, look at this moment here in historical time at that moment. Did it actually become the body of Jesus? Did, is that how the original hears the disciples heard it? Did they go, Ooh, this is his body. Or did they go, I get it, it's a symbol. Because this bread has always been a symbol. It's not the original bread, you know, from two thousand years ago. That would be crusty and staly, moldy and strange. Plus it was eaten. It was part of the gig. They understood this is a symbol of something that happened a long time ago. And now Jesus is telling us it's now a new symbol. It's a symbol for what he's about to do. Now, I don't think they got that all together. It took them a while. But when they looked back and they wrote this years later and they realized this is a symbol. Of what Jesus did the next day. When they broke his body. When he died. He said, this is my body. Broken. Take and eat. Then he continues. And again, church people get arguments going on. It's like it's fully humans around here or something. And it says, then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks... He gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So he takes a cup and scholars wrestle with which cup this might have been. And I kind of like to think it was the third cup of the meal. And there were four cups in the Passover meal. There were two that were drank before the meal. And then there was a third and a fourth that were drank after the meal. And I tend to think this is the third meal because these four cups were linked with a passage in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. And each of those cups was, was linked to a statement of Yahweh's where he said, I will rescue, I will redeem, I will restore, I will take. I mean, all these kind of different things. And this cup, I think, was the cup that was associated with the statement, I will redeem. And Jesus takes this cup and he gives it new meaning. He says, This is no longer the cup of the Passover lamb's blood. This is no longer the cup of God's redeeming you through the Passover lamb long ago. And that blood that you put on the doorframe. No, I'm reinterpreting this. I'm giving it new meaning. And the meaning is, it's my blood. <laughs> and the disciples went, ooh. Or did they see it as symbol again? In fact, the Aramaic, which Jesus spoke, there's not even an is in there. Remember Bill Clinton when he got in trouble for trying to redefine the word is? Back in ancient languages, they just left it out completely. I mean, here in the original, it says, my body, this, my body, this, my blood. Think of all the time you'd save. Having to leave out is all the time. And here, Jesus is saying, my body, my blood, it's a symbol. It's telling you something that I'm about to do. So he reinterprets this. I'm pretty sure it was completely lost on the disciples. I mean, at first. But hey, we're used to being lost. This is Jesus after all. Then he says this. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, which he's referring to grapes and to wine. From now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. What I think he's doing is he's, he abstained from the fourth cup. He abstained from the fourth cup of the meal. He, he led the disciples and they participated in the fourth cup, but he himself abstained. I mean, this is a, this is a, this is a classic uh, vow of abstinence. He made a vow and he said, I will not drink wine again until I enjoy it and with you in my father's kingdom. And this is the part of the meal where Jesus says, I'm redefining things and I'm looking forward to something in the future. And he's telling his disciples that they should too, that there's something for them to look forward to in the future. I mean, there's something to look back in the past, that this meal has something to do with the past, but it also has something to do with the future. See, Jesus still hasn't drank any wine since his death and resurrection. He's waiting for you. He's waiting for us when we will join him in his Father's kingdom. And there's a day coming. It's often called the wedding feast of the Lamb. And the imagery is that there's a day coming where the bride will go and meet the groom. And then the party's on. As many of you know, my brother got married this past summer. And it had been a long time coming for the bride. And we had a party. I mean... If there had been a fattened calf, we would have slaughtered it and eaten it. Instead, we had chicken. And we did participate the fruit of the vine. And other grains. And we had a wonderful time. We had a party because the bride and the groom had found each other and we participated in the wedding feast. And it is but a foretaste of that wedding feast that will come to pass when Jesus, who has been abstaining for 2000 years, gets his first taste of the food of the vine. And he gets to enjoy it with you. Now, be careful to make sure you're part of the you here. Because right before, if we look at context of this passage, right before the meal, he says to somebody in the crowd, you're going to betray me. He says to one of the 12, one of you who is here with me will betray me. And remember what he says here. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now all of a sudden you're thinking, uh oh, you're gonna get all grammar nerdy on me. And if you're not catatonic after the next few moments, you're gonna be okay. If you don't know what catatonic looks means, just use your phone and Google it real quick. Okay, Google. You know, whatever helps you. He chooses on purpose this word because Greek has words he could have used. Aramaic has words he could have used. He uses this word, many, not all. Now, hear me right. Jesus did die on the cross for all. He died on the cross to forgive everyone. John 3:16 is very clear for God's love of the world that he gave his only begotten son or his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would be saved they would not perish but have everlasting life whoever does that but even there there's conditions his his death on the cross Can affect change. Is powerful enough to affect change for everybody who believes. The catch is not everyone will believe. Not everyone is part of the many. Some are outside of that. And this is the part of the saying that we're going to wrestle with for a brief moment. Because this is the part that rubs our culture the wrong way. And next week. We're even going to camp out on this idea of a little bit longer. Because Jesus even has more words to say. On this. As much as we want everyone to be saved. As much as Jesus wants everyone to be saved. He's not willing to override your choices. As much as he wants you to make good choices, as much as he wants you to follow him, believe in him, trust in him, get baptized, he's not one to twist your arm. He's not going to override your choices. He's going to allow you to choose. Will you choose to be part of the many? Or will you choose to be part of the few? Will you choose to be part of those who aren't in Christ? Or will you be in Christ? Personally, I wish it said all. I mean, on an emotive level, on on a level of just pure, you know, I just love everybody and everybody's nice, and I just wish everybody could get along. And Jesus loves everybody. And you know, have you noticed when I raise my voice and do that kind of talk? It, you know, it it means that it's sarcastic. You know, on an emotive level, I wish that Jesus said all. And I bet Jesus in some of his emotions wished he said all. But then there's part of me that goes, but then there's some people who can't be part of the all, right? Because we all have those people. We all have a list of people who we think shouldn't be part of the many And our world has a list too. Even our culture, which feels like, you know, if you're good and you're nice and you're a good citizen, you're going to go to heaven, man. It's going to be okay. And even our society says, unless you're like Hitler, dude. Or Stalin. Or that guy that cut me off on the freeway. I mean, even our culture has limits to the grace it wants to extend. Even our culture has limits to the mercy it wants to extend. And if we have that sense of righteousness, because that's what that is, it's a sense of justice. Not all can be saved because some have chosen not to be. Some have chosen to live such heinous, evil lives by killing millions of people. And we even go, oh, they can't be there. Jesus says many. Now here's the kicker. Here's what the gospel says. Here's what the the message of Jesus says. Even if you've killed millions of people, but you repent and confess your sins, and you place your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you too can be saved. And that's where our culture, with its fake word for grace, we call tolerance. That's where tolerance has its limits, but grace is limitless. You see, no matter what you've done, No matter who you are, there is nothing you have ever done to cause God to love you any less. And yet there is nothing you could ever do that would cause him to love you more. Because it's grace. He says here. To be part of him. To participate in him is to commune with him, is to eat his body, to drink his blood these symbols that he reinterprets for us and says, my death is a vicarious atonement. My death is a ransom for many. My death is victory over Satan and evil. My death is the new exodus where you get to escape from the slave drivers of sin. You enter into new life through my grace through my mercy, through my death, through my broken body, through my blood. You can have life through my resurrection. So now you've heard where I come down on this. I see these as symbols. I see them as powerful symbols. Symbols that yank me back out of myself and out of this place and take me to the cross, to the past, to the death of Christ. But yet they yank me out of the past into the present and then further off into the future where one day many will be saved and they will commune with the Lord at the wedding feast of the Lamb forever. This can be true of you today. And if you make this choice to follow Christ as Savior, don't delay in being baptized. We have warm water. <laughs> and I have wet clothing that I can slip back into. Place your faith in Christ. Participate in His death and his resurrection through your baptism and through your following of him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these emblems, these pictures that you give us to help us understand what it is Jesus accomplished on the cross. And I pray that we would through the power of the Holy spirit be brought to a place where we wrestle with these symbols today for those of us who've heard this old, old story a lot, a lot of times just like those disciples fall, sitting around the table thinking, man, I've been doing this forever. May we see these symbols new and fresh because of rabbi Jesus. For those who are baptized today, we rejoice with them and we thank you that they have said, I want to identify myself with Jesus. We know that this country, that is a, is a commitment that sometimes we as Christians don't understand or even hold with much regard. But in other countries, to be baptized can lead to your death. So we pray, Father, that you would strengthen those folks who were baptized today, that they would sense your life in them, and that they would live in the power of the Holy Spirit and experience victory over sin in their life. And Father, we do pray that as we gather at the table, it would be something that draws us to Christ, draws us to one another, draws us into the kingdom that one day we will fellowship and dine with the risen Lord Christ in the Father's kingdom. Holy Spirit, make it so. And Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you see Christ and these symbols as the gift they really are. Amen.